kind of a dumb question, but Candamas still as popular now as as they were like when you first started your thing. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I guess like maybe just a bit of background for anybody that is listening and doesn't know. Um, yeah, please. Um, yeah, it's like kind of a quick introduction. My name is Alex, and I run a business called Terra Kandama. Um, Kandama is like a, what you would call a skill toy. It's like an old Japanese game. Um, pretty simple. It's like a ball and cup game, three cups, a spike on a little cross piece, and then there's a ball attached to a string. And um, it's a game that's like really simple, basic, at the kind of like pick it up and play with it level, but it's the sort of thing you can never really master. Um, there's always kind of like a new trick, a new move you can do. It's all about kind of learning and progressing, um, kind of more and more, uh, kind of advanced moves and tricks. Um, so yeah, I guess when I first saw Kendama was like probably 2008, 2009. Um, a few friends of mine just saw it in a skiing video. Actually, it was like some skiers went to Japan, uh, somebody in Japan introduced it to them and they had a couple, I think just like kind of B-roll shots at the end of this video of them playing with it. Um, and just over the last, you know, whatever that is, 14 years or so, um, I, I would, to answer your question, I'd say like, it's kind of just slowly been gaining popularity. Um, it's, it's kind of a funny thing because there's, there's these kind of little boom and busts um, a lot of the time with kids. Um, so there's been, over the years, times where in some certain location, it'll just absolutely blow up with, you know, kind of junior high, high school age kids, maybe. Um, and it kind of creates this like big market there for a few years. But um, I think it's kind of a kid thing where it's like, it's really cool this year, next year, it's not cool. Um, so it's like this real boom and bust. But uh, I think in the background of that, it's always just kind of been growing and growing this kind of more. Um, I, I guess like dedicated user base of people who, you know, aren't just doing it because it's a trend, but because they actually find it fun and rewarding and interesting to play. Does uh, like the, the rapid growth of social media, does that like add to the boom? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, at least as far as starting a business went, um, I, I really talk a lot of shit about Facebook. I don't really like Facebook that much, but yeah, um, I really have to credit that platform with a lot of our early success and just being able to reach customers. Did it, um, it only help early on or is it still helping? Uh, I mean, Facebook specifically, we don't use anymore. Um, but at the same time, Instagram is kind of where um, I guess you would say like a lot of the Kendama culture kind of lives like yeah. people posting videos, um, interacting, um, just kind of feeding off each other's ideas and creativity and energy with it. Um, so, you know, Instagram is effectively Facebook or meta or whatever. Um, but uh, I mean, specifically like I think running a business, it's been really apparent kind of watching the evolution of these platforms because in the early days on Facebook, it was like surprisingly easy to get this kind of viral reach. 
um, like for effectively zero cost. Like there was a few Facebook posts that I remember in the early days where we would get some stickers printed and like take a picture of a pile of stickers and just like, Hey, you know, here's a pile of stickers. Whoever guesses how many stickers are in this pile will like win a big sticker pack, whatever. And the way Facebook worked was, you know, if your friend comments on something, it would show up in your feed and then just kind of grow out through that sort of viral method. And, you know, our page would have a few thousand people following it or whatever. And some of these posts would get like 20,000 comments, um, which is at least at that time, it was like absolutely absurd to yeah. like kind of have that reach and that ability. Um, and then over time, just kind of seeing, uh, Facebook kind of trying to figure out how to monetize their platform um, and really kind of like restricting that reach, uh, bringing in like kind of an advertising platform as part of it. Um, really, you could tell they were trying to suss out like which pages were individuals versus brands, kind of giving the brand some tooling up front, but then not long after starting to restrict the reach unless, you know, you start yeah. to look for the advertising and so forth. And Instagram really kind of followed, <clears throat> followed the same trajectory, I think just like a few years later. Um, I mean, I'm sure you've kind of had some experience with that as well. That's- yeah. This is like kind of along the lines of what I end up talking to a lot of people I have on here about, cause we're all kind of in the same boat. We're, you know, especially me early on that Facebook and Instagram really helped me kind of get, it was like a stepping stone to whatever small success I ended up having, but it doesn't really work that way anymore at all. We've like, I've been off Facebook for probably longer than you're even talking about, but yeah, I remember it used to be super helpful. It was amazing. It was a way to like reach all these new people and communicate with like kind of pockets of people in places that I probably was never going to go to. And now it's nothing like that. Yeah. yeah and even Instagram as a platform, it's, it's kind of gone that way as well. That It seems like a lot of people I talk to first fell in love with Instagram just because it was the place where your friends all were and you could go and just kind of get this quick update on what they were doing. Um, and, and there's a lot of like kind of this like real polished fake aspect to Instagram. Like people just put like their best moments up and so forth, you know, yeah. that, that thing. but at the same time, you know, you could follow your friends or the people you're interested in and see them, but it seems like now it's harder and harder to kind of sift through. Like, I feel like when I'm on Instagram, I'm just trying to like scroll through all the junk to like actually find something I want to see. Yeah. And it's very just like blatantly ad based now. It's, I I don't know. I mean, it's, I've said for a while that I think it's actually like kind of sad, like, you know, Facebook meta is effectively one of the biggest like most well-capitalized companies that has ever existed like in yeah. human history. And it's like the best they could do to figure out how to make some money was just like sell out all of their users and yeah. like destroy the platform to the point where like, like when was the last time you 
had a conversation where somebody had something good to say about Instagram, you know? Yeah, it's, it's very it's, rare. It's just, it's just kind of sad that, you know, with all that capability, it's like, this is the best they could do. Um, and I feel like there's like some apathy there. That's like, you, well, they got the user base. People are just stuck in it now, but um, I, I don't know. I guess, you know, things are always changing too. Like you see new apps coming out and, kind of stealing a bit of the share here and there and yeah. they seem to like try to copy features from other apps, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's an ever changing landscape. That's for sure. And, and I guess as like somebody running a brand, it's, 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 it's like a really powerful tool, but it definitely becomes tiring to just trying to keep up and yeah. understand like, I, I don't know, just how to like, stroke the Instagram algorithm like just right so that they'll actually show your stuff to somebody yeah but yeah so I guess uh like for for nowhere fast and for your projects like what do you think are the strongest platforms um customers now or yeah, not even, I, I've been really preaching followers. like just uh like organic as organic as it gets like email list your website yeah. And just for a while, like before we closed, I would just give everyone my phone number. And it's funny because I know like now the the kind of like text message marketing is is trending a bit, but it's it's all like it's not what it seems to be. Like you get someone's number, but then if you text it, it's like an automated sign up for this and then whatever. I I just gave people my phone number and I feel that was like the easiest way to, to respond to people. Cause you can, I mean, send the same photos you're going to Instagram through a text. People would just ask like, you know, what, what boards we had on the wall or what trucks or wheels, whatever. And it was easy just to send them a photo, but. That I know not everyone is, is going to want to hand out their number like that. And we, I mean, we we did okay, but we weren't, I don't think we were nearly like as, as big as, as Tara is. So you probably don't want to give out your phone number. <laughs> uh, I mean, not, I guess I'd be kind of scared to just like, post that fully publicly but no i i was but i can honestly say that i've never had even one instance of any like any tomfoolery with the number i uh, like i mean i think pranks prank calls are super funny i always kind of wished i got them (laughs) i never got any no one like pranking me no one yeah it was it was just, I mean, it was, it was great, but yeah, no one ever played around with it. And I thought they would. Yeah. That's funny. You'd kind of think so. I, I kind of agree. It would be kind of, I don't know. It would just be kind of like this wholesome tomfoolery. If somebody was like crank calling. Yeah. You're like kind of brand, like your business number. It's like, I, guess- I mean, the least you could expect putting your personal phone over it, but yeah, I never. Yeah. Never I guess. More so, I I say I'd be kind of scared doing it just because we, I, I don't know, maybe it wouldn't be as much as I think, but considering we have a bit of a reach, 
I would just be worried that it'd become overwhelming, I guess, because there's kind of, there's this tough thing with like kind of viral reach where like you're saying, like people really don't want to just talk to a robot. Like they don't want just like an automated message. Like they really want to feel like there's a human there. Um, And I think that's super important. And that's something like we've always really strived to do as a brand is you know, we're not a big company or something. We're like one, two, maybe three people working on this at any given time. So having that human connection, like it, it's very true to who we are and it helps communicate that. And I think that's very important. And I think customers really respond well to that. Yeah. Um, and I, you even kind of see that in customer service emails here and there where somebody, I don't know, they might get a product they're not happy with and they send an email and they sound kind of angry in this first message and, and you just kind of like write any kind of even keel reply back. And it's like the second message always comes back like super happy and thankful. And I don't, I don't know, you can tell that it's, it's a lot harder to kind of like, I guess, have any like anger or like, or, or any, like people want to be nice in person, right? Like it's when you're actually talking to another person, it's kind of hard to keep being a jerk if it's not truly warranted. Yeah, no, no, I know what you mean. It, it, it kind of like humanizes that the person behind the email a little more, like going on your end or their end. So yeah, yeah I that was always what I thought too. Like it's not that hard to like treat people nicely and and we didn't you know go like sometimes it's inevitable you're gonna have like a a faulty product or something kind of out of your control but I always thought the way you dealt with it I mean it's like we we had a small brand you are like I said bigger than we we reach but you're still a small small-ish brand, right? Like, it, it's still pretty much your, the face of it. Or you started as the face of it. So you want to, like, relate to people on a more personal note. Yeah, and I, I think that's, like, the personal side of it's important. And I think for us, like, one of one of the rewarding things is the personal side, too. It's yeah like building this community seeing this community um like at this point through kendama like there's people i've met kind of through the community that i'm still friends with 10 years later um and and like from really like from all around the world um like earlier this summer uh we got to take a trip out of country for the first time a couple years um went to europe for a couple weeks and it was kind of like this, didn't even realize it at first, kind of this moment where there's a, a guy I know there's, his name's Alex as well, Alex Roush. And the first time I met him was almost exactly 10 years prior. And we like went and stayed with him a night. Um, he lives in the Netherlands. And just realizing that like, whoa, like the last time I was here was 10 years ago. And I think though, like the older I've become, I've, kind of started to realize that I there's a bunch of people I know who like don't have these kind of long standing relationships in their life. Yeah. Appreciate that having these sorts of connections is really special. Um, I think it's very valuable kind of 
you know, gives you some grounding in life. Um, like I, I have another friend who I've known since we were like young kids and I've kind of laughed with him that it's like, you know, at least like our relationship, it's like, you're not really putting anything on anymore and you can be very kind of real with the other person because you know, there's, there's nothing, there's no facade there. Like you really know this other, this other person. And so it's nice to have that because if nothing else, it's like a good reality check because you've got somebody who can, who knows you who can call you on your shit. Yeah. Tell you when you're doing great, when you're not doing great. Um, so I don't know, just the, the community building aspect of all of this is it's, it's really worth a lot, I think. Um, and it's something that, like I think you've always done really well with, with nowhere fast that um, just like as a brand, I feel like there's so much like community behind it. And uh, at least for me, like looking at it, it's like a big part of the brand identity is um, like this community. And um, I mean, specifically like in Edmonton, like a lot of the really cool stuff that, exists and is coming out of Edmonton and just the people that are there. And, uh, you know, I guess I can appreciate like how much kind of leg work and, it, and it's kind of thankless work a lot of the time to kind of keep something like that cohesive and to keep it going. And it's like notoriously difficult to monetize stuff like that too. So it's oh yeah, like both, no. both in like the straight up aspect and also in the like, even once you find a way to monetize it, it's, it's hard to like, I, I don't know. You don't want to be like feeling like you're not like you're ripping your homies off or something like, you know, like, Oh, here's this, you know, some product that I want to make you feel like you're getting really good value. Like, I don't want you to go home kind of thinking that I like really fleeced you on this or something like that's Yeah. No, that's, no, that's a really I, tough thing. I know exactly what you mean. That was, that was me. Like, every day of of running the shop always like it it just felt like even though that's kind of what you do right like you run a business you sell things for a bit more than you pay for them but every day I just I felt like I was doing something wrong even though I wasn't at all it, it was I I definitely like the the community aspect of it, and if there was any way to to not involve finances, and which is impossible, I I would have loved to to do it that way, but it doesn't really work that way. Why don't I dive a bit deeper? What what year? Like how soon after you saw? Candem is in this video for the first time. Did you start producing them? Uh, so I guess first time seeing them, like I said, I think was about 2008. Um, the first about year or so, it was, it, it was just kind of something like we knew about. We didn't really play with a lot. Um, it was actually, uh, Steven Stefan and another friend of his, Graham, they went on a trip to Japan um, and they brought maybe a half dozen back because they knew what they were. Um, and it was kind of like once, like they, they brought them back as gifts. And so once kind of everybody in our friend group had one, 
that's when we started actually playing with them a little bit more. Cause it's like, you know, we'd meet up to go out on the weekend and, you know, like Steve would have some new trick that I couldn't do. And it was like, Oh shit. Okay. I got to kind of catch up a little bit and learn this one. Um, so we kind of started to push each other a little bit and just learn some new tricks and kind of progress with it over a year or two. I think it must've been, I think the spring of 2011, um, that again, with another friend, uh, a guy named Ben, we just figured out that we could buy a wood lathe for like, I don't know, it was like probably a little bit less than 200 bucks and really just try and wing it and go for one, um, try making one. And I think we sort of had this idea to start a brand with it, but largely it was just kind of this idea of, Hey, you know, like, it seems like we could make one, like neither of us had ever run a wood lathe before. Like we really had no idea what we were doing, but, um, I don't know. I think we both just kind of had like crappy summer jobs, um, like in between university. And so we just thought like, Hey, you know, this is something that could be fun to do. Um, so I guess kind of officially it was like later in 2011 that, you know, we kind of spent the summer figuring out how to run this lathe and how to make a couple of them. Uh, it's like, it's probably hilarious if you actually take how many hours we spent making maybe like six or 10 of these things. And then like what we like sold them for on the internet coming out of that, we probably paid ourselves like a dollar an hour or something like super absurd, but um, how much harder was it to actually make one compared to how easy you thought it would be to make one? Oh, that's a good question. I guess, I guess just actually like just generally making one that was kind of like not a nice shape, kind of poorly made, but you'd look at it and be like, okay, that's a Kendama. It's like kind of an ugly one, but there it is. Um, it wasn't as hard as we kind of thought it might be. Um, but to kind of get good at it and to figure out a good process and kind of refine so that we had this repeatable process to make a kind of like, you know, the same shape every time and everything that took, I mean, I would say like a couple of years of kind of working slowly and getting better and getting better. Um, do you guys it was usually like all pot too? So we were really just kind of figuring it out as we went and watching, you know, a couple of YouTube videos or whatnot here or there. Are they still handmade or do you make too many? Uh, I guess we still do some handmade ones, but just by volume, um, a lot of what we make, we contract the workout. Um, so currently, like we use a shop in china that like honestly they're like really good at making them um and it's kind of a funny thing because usually wooden products like this um like you're looking at like something you'd make on a lathe out of wood is like a stairway banister like railing or like a baseball bat or all these items that generally don't have very like strict tolerances when you manufacture. Um, so it's actually been kind of interesting over the years, uh, like working with and talking to a lot of different shops and productions around the world and just trying to communicate that we'd want really tight tolerances because like really good condom players, that's what they want is like a very specific, well-made product. 
And then we go to some shop that's used to like a way higher, higher tolerance in their quality control. And they're just kind of laughing at us. Like, like this is a wood product. Like there's, there's no way we can do what you need to do. So um, I'm kind of on a tangent, but uh, it's, it, it's been really nice having some productions we can work with that are good at it, that care about it. Um, because the stuff we make in house is extremely like high attention to detail um we've kind of specialized into like if if you want like a very specific kendama like a a certain wood a certain weight a certain balance and aesthetic um you know not only can we make it but we can probably give advice on how to kind of tailor your design to really be the best it can be um and we've worked with i don't know like any fancy wood species or expensive material or you know you can kind of you name it we've probably made something out of it um but again you know with that comes a much higher price tag um so as with any business there's there's a market for the really high-end stuff but a lot of what we do is just supplemented by um you know the kind of more mass market made where um it's honestly like still great quality these days for what you pay, but um, it's like a much more affordable level. And when you do a run of them these days, uh, what are the numbers like? Like not, not the the price, but I mean, how many do you make at once? Um, It'll kind of depend um, kind of what, the model is but um at least the stuff we're having produced for us like we'll put orders in for uh, i don't know maybe like a thousand pieces at a time um give or take um which i mean at the same time the the production's kind of getting back to normal now but that was definitely one struggle during covid um was just the production times went absolutely haywire we went from being able to turn orders around in a month or two to them quoting us three or four months and then three or four months passes and stuff's still not done. And now, okay, it's another two or three months. And there was a couple of times where we'd put a sizable order in and then not see the product for like seven months. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's probably pretty obviously that's like a very difficult way to run a business um, when you're just stuck waiting with empty shelves um, so through a lot of that, it was very nice having our own production in-house. Um, we definitely turned and relied on that a lot more. Um, and I guess just in general as a business, I've always tried to stay pretty nimble and not kind of get overstocked. I've seen some other brands like in our industry kind of end up in that position where they really try to push and expand grow a huge stock um and then kind of like i was talking about these little boom and busts with kids or whatever it's like some market disappears and now suddenly they're stuck with like what will be like a couple of years worth of products that are just going to get stale and people aren't going to want it um yeah. so at least on our end like i've always really tried to stay more nimble and um i guess for a lot of time too like we we now use like some of these production factories, but for a long time, we didn't. Um, It was probably only in 2016 or so that we kind of started to contract out more work like that. Um, And actually the first 
production we ever did outside of like our own handmade stuff was a CNC shop in Edmonton. Um, which honestly they did really great work. Um, it's, we kind of fell out of touch with them after a while. Um, they were kind of slow to fulfill some orders as well, but, um, I don't know, just personally, that was, that was always like a goal when we started the brand at least was just to create some high quality stuff to make some interesting stuff, things that's products that aren't just the same as everybody else. Um, yeah. And being able to make like a, a truly like Canadian made product was something like we were very proud of for a long time. Um, like we definitely just kind of repped that and made that part of our brand very heavily for as long as we could. Um, but uh, again, you know, over time it just kind of became more and more apparent that if we wanted to keep doing it, that, you know, finding these small ways to scale up while still like keeping an emphasis on staying true to kind of being hands-on with it, being personable, being, um, kind of a relatable brand it's it's honestly it's a tough balance to kind of strive for because it's like there's all these little shortcuts you can take that you know might kind of make you more money at the end of the day but are things that I just like personally don't really want to do don't feel good about doing they don't feel like I don't know maybe honest isn't the right word but they don't really feel honest in a way yeah no and I know what you mean so through the pandemic, did your demand go up, but your supply went down? Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. We were, that was kind of the tough thing was whenever we had products, our sales were great. Um, you know, I think it's not a stretch of imagination to think like, you know, people are spending a lot more time at home, you know, time alone. What's, you know, something you can do? What's like a hobby you can pick up just to kind of keep yourself active and interested. So we definitely saw great sales through the pandemic. It was just the sales were great when we had the stock really. What a, like, I mean, just as, as someone who knows nothing, but watching that, like people use Candemas, it looks like a, a very like precise and a very skilled hobby. So what, like if you had to guess what's the rate of like people trying it out compared to people like sticking with it? Oh, that's a good question. Um, These days, no one wants to like stick to anything they aren't good at immediately. Yeah, that's very true. And I think, I don't know. I, I'd really, I think I'd just be like pretty blindly guessing the kind of stick rate there. I would think it's like, it's it, as with most things, it's probably not like a, a super high percent, but I guess I would like hope it's high, you know, maybe like 25% of people who like ever pick one up, like actually go through and learn a few tricks. And there's, you know, the further and further people push and progress themselves, that's probably just like a smaller and smaller number of people from the original people who pick it up. Um, it's kind of nice these days, I think kendamas are a lot easier to play, um, like for sure. Like when I first started playing, um, there's an association in Japan, like Japan loves like super official, like rankings and all of this sort of stuff. Um, so there's the Japanese kendama association, the JKA. 
and they're kind of like the governing body in Japan. And so they have uh, kind of this whole rubric of like tricks you can learn, ways that they do contests. Um, it's kind of like a martial arts system that you can work through these different levels and kind of move up in skill. Um, and so they very tightly regulated their like official certified kendamas. Um, and largely with kendama being like a kid's toy in Japan, I think the size they made was like actually pretty small. Um, but that was just like the standard. And so for a long time, like if you were playing Kendama, it was kind of funny. It was like, if you didn't have one of those like certified Kendamas, like it didn't really count. Like you could like do a trick and post a video online and it was like, okay, neat, but like you're cheating. Like you're using, you know, cause some kind of aftermarket setup here. So um, like do they regulate by Sorry? Size and, did they regulate by size and weight? And like, what were the, the rules or regulations? Yeah, they, so the, the JKA would basically just license, they, they held one or two kind of patents in Japan on the Kendama shape. Um, and so they would basically grant a license to two or three companies um, to produce a model. And yeah, it was like a very specific size um kind of like implicitly like a certain weight just because the size would kind of dictate that like the paint had to be you know of like a certain durability and whatnot um and part of it too actually is the price of them they actually kind of had a limit on what you could sell one of the certified ones for because they wanted to keep it kind of accessible for everybody um as far as i understand their goal um and so really that stood for a long time but today that's kind of entirely out the window um like if you look at kind of like a more modern kind of shaped kendama like the cups are all a lot bigger the balls even a little bit bigger just it's kind of made to be more playable um which i think going back to your question kind of helps that like that first retention rate where you know someone picks it up tries a couple times and it's like if you can you know, actually catch it in a cup or something like within a couple tries, that's a lot more fun than just like missing a bunch, like obviously. So I think you yeah. can kind of get people like a little bit more. Um, I think on any level, like there's always going to be like Kendama kind of teaches this perseverance and patience, um, which is like, it's not something that every person clicks with, but um, definitely if you're that kind of person that, is really like self-improvement motivated, um, creative and just can kind of get into that mood to like, Hey, I'm going to try and learn something new. Like I'm going to fail this thing like 50 times, but I'm going to get a little closer each time. And eventually I'm going to do it. And it's, I, I think it's like, especially today where social media is just kind of like constantly like comments and likes and like here's your reward and like serotonin hits it's kind of nice yeah. to have something that's like the super analog unplug you actually have to work for this and then it might feel good if you can like accomplish your goal um, i think that's the value a lot of people get out of it it seems kind of like meditative in a way when, yeah. when i see people doing it they're like super focused quiet yeah. I, I i i 100 um it, it's i mean it's kind of cool you, you've noticed that because i kind of tell people that sometimes and i always people i always wonder if people think i'm like 
I don't know, kind of crazy or like on some hippie kind of trip or something that's like, no, it's actually like really meditative. And there's been times where it's like, I'll be trying something and you're just kind of in this, like this state where you're just kind of like, so focused on these little details and getting a little closer and getting a little closer. And there's this funny moment where it's like, everything lines up and you do it right and it works and you land this trick and it's like, like suddenly you like snap out of it and like back in the real world. It's like, Whoa, like really pulls you out. It's like, you don't even really realize like how far you've gone down this rabbit hole. Yeah. But then suddenly it's like, you click right out of it and it becomes very apparent in that moment. So, I mean, it's, I, I don't know. I, I kind of think it's like, kind of cheesy in a way but um i've always found it's kind of similar to like trying to learn like a new skateboard trick or something yeah yeah, yeah. Um, where you just okay you know you change your foot position a little bit that didn't quite work like okay you put a little bit more pressure here that didn't quite work like you know you catch one in the shins that sucks but you kind of get a little closer a little closer and then finally you actually land on the thing again it's like yeah boom, like you figured it out it's like that perseverance it's and same sort of uh same sort of mentality at least to me it seems sort of similar because it's like you might want like you want to show your friends whatever you've learned and it you could do it in a group but really you could do it on your own too like it's it's great skating with your friends and you want to show everyone, but technically skateboarding you don't need anyone but you to accomplish this stuff. No, totally, and it's. I, I think at least in that aspect, you know, having the friends there is motivation. Yeah. Um, I mean, especially with skateboarding, where there's you know like some risk, some consequence. It's it's always crazy when people are like motivated to really throw down on their own. Um, like it's always, I think it's always easier when you have like a group of friends who are kind of pushing you and, you know, maybe kind of egging you on. You really, like you said, you kind of want to show them your best stuff. You want to like, everybody who's like ever skateboarded or ever knows that kind of feeling that like when there's just a good session and you have a bunch of your friends out, like, it's kind of when the magic happens and you start landing stuff and like really progressing. Um, yeah. But at the same time, it's, it's like this real madman thing to be out there on your own and like really pushing yourself. Um, I remember like when I was younger working at snow Valley way back in the day. And uh, there was one guy I would ride with in particular, Justin. Um, he started snowboarding like, like much later than a lot of the rest of kind of our group of friends and crew, but he was progressing really fast. He had awesome style. Like he was just tons of fun, really motivating to ride with. And he would be out there on his own on like the coldest, iciest Edmonton nights, just trying to learn like hard tricks for no reason other than like his own progress. And it, it was like, it was really cool. I always thought he was like super crazy, but I had so much respect for just, that mentality to like really go for it yeah yeah that i think that's even rarer and rarer as time goes but when i see someone with that dedication like to, to anything really it's quite a remarkable thing to witness yeah what, uh, i'm i'm thinking like 
You know, for me, trying to sell skateboards or sell clothing and hats and stuff, skateboards, by nature, like, the better you are at skateboarding, the quicker you go through skateboards. And, you know, you might grow out of your size or rip a shirt or lose a hat. But, like, how how often does someone need a new Candema? Like, it seems like you would be trying to find first-time customers while I could just, like, kind of coast off selling the same thing to the same people over and over again. Yeah, it's... Um, honestly, again, it's kind of similar. I think like you're saying, like kind of the better you get, like the more you kind of go through them. Um, we actually, we kind of had this kind of brand slogan that we've used on and off over the years. That's just destroy all damas. Um, and, and kind of the idea there isn't just like literally like needless destruction, but it's that you know, you really just have two pieces of wood. So if you're playing and smacking them together, it's inevitable that they'll start to show wear and break down over time. Mm. Um, and I, I think there's, it really depends on kind of the style of play somebody has for how quickly they'll like go through a Kendama, but um, definitely like over time, like as people become more serious players, they only last so long. Um, I mean, it's a wooden thing. So if you're doing tricks where you're intentionally smacking the pieces together or you're just like flipping the thing harder and faster and it's hitting the ground or whatever, like they'll eventually chip kind of bust apart, um, wear down. Um, so th there's definitely like that return kind of customer factor. Uh, there's definitely like a kind of collector side, the Kendama stuff as well. Like we have some customers that will buy stuff just because, you know, they like the aesthetic. Um, whether you know sitting on their shelf like i think kendama like on its own is kind of an aesthetic thing like it's kind of an yeah. interesting shape. um it, it's not like completely absurd just to have one sitting on your shelf it's like you know kind of like a i, I don't know ornament that's maybe a strange word to use but um i mean kind of similarly like people buy skateboards to hang on the wall and just kind of keep as an art piece yeah of course um so yeah, I think, it, I think it's kind of similar in that way. There's this kind of funny, like, arc in Kendama 2, where I think when you first start playing Kendama, you actually really kind of do a lot more damage to them because you just aren't as coordinated yet. So it's like even when you're just trying to catch it, you kind of smack them together harder. And then as you kind of improve your coordination, it's like you can be a little bit softer with your touch. You start to cushion a little bit more. And I guess maybe it's like you destroy them more at the start a little bit less in the middle but then if you keep trying like more advanced tricks i think you just start wrecking them quicker and quicker do people um like i know again like not to keep referencing skateboarding but i feel like everyone loves a new skateboard like right no one really like once once your old one is is chipped or waterlogged like no one thinks twice about replacing it if if they had the means to do it but then with like a baseball glove you know people want to like keep the one they they've had for a while because it's worked <clears throat> in like do people want to keep candemas or do they like swap them out without much thought uh i think it kind of goes 
a little bit both ways there. Um, I guess in some sense, it kind of depends on the kind of trick you're doing. Like there's some tricks where if you have a kind of a fresh one, it might work a little better, but um, like other tricks, if you're trying to balance it a certain way that if you have one, that's kind of a little bit more beat up and like worked in rounded edges, like it might actually sit a little better. Um, so it really depends. And I, I mean, certainly like you'll, if you, you know, see someone playing Kendama, you go to some competition or something, you'll, you'll see people playing like absolutely thrashed old pieces of wood. Like, so it really, it's, it's, it's kind of like a personal preference thing. I think almost at a certain point, like, I think there's a point of no return where if, if the thing's not performing well, then that's kind of that. But um, I think there's like a little bit of that baseball glove aspect where you can kind of work, work a Kendama in and kind of get it good. And then, um, you know, that's ultimately that, like I kind of mentioned that saying like destroy all Damas where, you know, by playing it, you're going to ruin it. It just takes time. It's like, you know, it's kind of create and destroy kind of aspect. Yeah. Well, and I uh, I understand the ball and the cup are separate pieces, but is the rest of it all one piece or are there moving parts? Or not moving, but like... Yeah. Yeah, like not like... Yeah, not, not, like, not like a moving part, but um, at least the side with the cups, it's like two pieces of wood that'll fit together. Um, it's kind of like a little tapered... Um, hole that it should fit pretty snug down onto um, so I guess generally people would just replace either one side or the other or both um, but um, yeah it's, it's it's really it's it's really just a lot of personal preference everybody will have their favorite you know specific shape of the thing specific wood specific weight um, you know when you start out it's kind of all the same but the more people play, they usually develop a preference. And how many, uh, like, companies are there, Canadian Kandema companies? Uh, Canadian? Um, that's a good question. We're, we're, like, by far the longest running, but I guess over the years, there's always been, I don't know, maybe, like, two to four other kind of small companies going um have people like come and gone since you started yeah definitely there's been a lot of the time it's like it's kind of like when we started where it's like somebody who's played a bit they're passionate about it um and you know they just start trying to make one in their garage like very similar kind of story um but a lot of the time, you know, those are kind of passion projects. And so you, a couple of years on, it's like, okay, they didn't really make a ton of revenue. It's not like it's actually their job. They get interested in something else because, you know, running a brand takes a ton of work. Um, and so they've kind of like over time come in and out. Um, it's always, I always kind of honestly, like love seeing it because it's so relatable to our story, um, especially when people are like making them by hand and really trying to make it work. Um, it's, you know, in some sense it's competition, but it's also like Kendama is this kind of weird little niche thing. So 
like that person who's making this kendama in their garage in their garage like that really just represents somebody else out there doing some work to kind of like advertise and grow it yeah um, so like generally the industry is pretty friendly um there's kind of like three four other like we're like good friends with all of them pretty much like we've worked with them on lots of projects um i was saying my internet was unstable but i think i'm back yeah um, no, you're bad i think it, it cut out for a second but you were saying there was three or four yeah there's uh, just kind of more like globally speaking there's like three or four other um kind of also like longtime brands that have been around for like you know a decade now uh that's it's a very like i was saying like a very friendly industry like we've worked on tons of projects with them um and i kind of see them more as just like i was saying like more avenues to kind of grow the industry um you know they're they're doing work in areas that i don't have the capacity to whatsoever um like sweets kendamas is a big one of the big brands um they're out of minneapolis and some of the stuff they're doing is like super cool. Like they sponsor, um, like they have a team of like kind of like Kendama players that are like, they're like hardcore players. They sponsor some of the best players out there. Like a couple of them are winning every contest you can think of. Um, but they also have this, this wider team that they call the sweets mob that they've got like big DJ, like EDM artists that are in love with Kendama and repping them. Um, They've got like professional BMXers, skateboarders, um, like uh, like Boo Johnson is like one of their oh, reps. Oh yeah. Um, is is there? A, I mean, not that everything is all about money, but when you're talking about these competitions and people winning, is is there like a financial gain, or is it just for like clout? Yeah, for some of them, for sure, there is. Um, there's, there's, there's kind of maybe, I guess, like two or three big contests every year. Um, there's like a, the World Cup in Japan. Uh, there's like a freestyle championship in Japan, just like a different format. And then uh, the company I mentioned, Sweets, they run like a, the North American Open, like a big one in the U.S. every year. Um, and it's kind of varied year to year, but like World Cup, the winner will take home maybe ten to twenty thousand um, dollars. I want to say like the the North American Championship, it's maybe more in the range of like three to five thousand. Um, so it's it's not like big money, but um, at least for the select few that are at that level, like you know that's that's a pretty good chunk of money when you're like a twenty year old kid playing ball and cup. So yeah. <laughs> And then what about, uh, like, is the, is there Twitch streams? That seems yeah, like that it was, makes sense. That was something that I, I think is kind of like an artifact of COVID. Well, I don't know if I should call it an artifact. It's not like it's not happening anymore. Maybe that implies it. But, um, again, like, Sweets is one that really pushed just getting online um, with, like, covid not being able to travel not being hold, able to hold events like they switched a bunch of contests to like an online format um and they have a twitch channel that 
I think they stream like several days a week, like very, very regularly. Um, seems like they have a good following. I've, I've like spent a little bit of time on Twitch, but it's like not really my go-to, but it seems like a really good audience and like a good avenue for a lot of just like online video content these days. Yeah. They remind me, I uh, I don't know if we cut out like at the very beginning, but I think I I asked you what avenue of advertising you saw the most return from, but then I think you right. asked me and then I answered, but never got your answer. So if you're not using Facebook and Instagram's not what it used to be, what works for Tara? Uh Instagram is not what it used to be, but Instagram is still definitely our biggest kind of platform avenue. Um, just in general, like a lot of, like I said, Kendama culture kind of lives on Instagram. It's where people are posting tricks, interacting, you know, chatting. Um, so that's definitely the biggest one. Um, honestly, like what you said, having a mailing list and having your own organic reach is huge as well. Um, so we have a pretty good mailing list that, I mean, honestly, we underutilize, uh, probably should use it more, but yeah, I don't use mine either. I, I grow it, but I don't, don't use it to its full potential. Yeah. It's, it's like, I don't want to just spam people with stuff because I don't know, I've signed up for newsletters that eventually you just don't even bother, like kind of just click red and yeah you're done with it but yeah i mean we're far far from getting to that level so it's it's like you said like that's your direct organic reach to your customer where nobody else is in the way um so i definitely see a lot of value just in in like being able to email and talk to customers directly um so i i guess that's really a lot of our reach right now there's I've kind of talked with one or two of like the players that are on our team um, about using TikTok a little bit because TikTok's just as a platform is becoming bigger and bigger and bigger, obviously. Every day. It's ridiculous. Like I, I've only used it a little bit personally and it's, it's like its whole own kind of meta on there. That's the type of things that are popular and the style of videos that, um, I don't know. We might start using that a little bit more. There's one guy on our team who's, he seems kind of keen to make some content that'll work for it. Um, so we're going to hopefully kind of test run that. Um, but yeah, a lot, honestly, a lot of the rest of it is just kind of organic reach. Um, and again, kind of just feeding off of like the growth that's the wider, the, like the wider, um, industry is kind of fostering that, um, you know, like somebody like Boo Johnson or like Reed Stark or Boogie T or some of these guys that sweets sponsors that like they have a massive reach in their own right for what they've already like done well for. And now they're, you know, they're excited about Kendama and also showing it. And so, uh, we get a lot of people just coming through those avenues that's, you know, they see Boogie T playing with a Kendama. They think it looks cool. They search online and at some point or another, they find us. So, um, I don't know. There's like, 
something I've said before that I've heard that, well, I, I've heard, it's not my saying to be clear, but uh, it's like a rising tide floats all boats. Um, so, you know, the more like our competitors do to kind of grow the industry, the more it helps everybody in the industry as well. Yeah. No, no. I, uh, I always try to think that way about, about what I did. And I think that's, uh, like a healthier and a more mature way to look at things. But for the most part, it it is, it's always kind of true. Like if everyone's uplifting the thing as a whole, you know, you might introduce someone, they end up going with, with another company, but that company might uplift a new Kendama user that ends up settling on you guys for a purchase. So, you know, it all kind of grows like in unison. But I think it's it's hard to think that way, like when you're in it. Like I, I mean, I say now I I try to abide by that rule, but I definitely wasn't always happy when when there was competition. Which I mean, that that's another thing, and it sounds like the whole pandemic industry is is quite like small in a good way it's funny like you said there's three or four like companies there's probably three or four people trying to do what i did like on my block like everyone (laughs) wants to make t-shirts and hats yeah yeah i i guess like we're kind of lucky that it's like a little niche industry in that way and I mean, it's also as time has passed, it's, I guess, like lost a little bit of that charm, you might say. Like it's, um, you know, I think people like get older and mature a little bit and start to realize like, you know, I, I really do have to pay these bills. Like, yeah, you know, like just like good vibes doesn't satisfy my landlord. Um, so it's... Yeah, I guess I guess I count myself lucky in that regard. I, I know like, you know, even just we've had discussions in the past that um like the clothing industry in general is like its whole own giant behemoth. Like I I've always thought it seems like a very tough market to kind of break into and um and, and kind of build a successful brand. So yeah, I can understand what you're saying where, you know, there's like four other people on the block trying to kind of push the same dream. Um, and I guess if nothing else, maybe that like being in that sort of environment makes you appreciate when you find like the real ones even more, like when you find somebody who yeah have that sort of like this kind of competitive collaboration we're not yeah. just trying to put each other down, but you can find not, not everyone gets motivated by that, but I I personally do as well. Like when when there's someone else or multiple other people like trying to make it in the same space, that just kind of makes me think harder about how to like stand out or how to be unique. But not not everyone sees it that way but yeah it's 
it's like there's no there's no right answer to it either right it's something yeah. you, can, you learn running a brand and a business and uh, you know like when we're trying to do product design or some new packaging design or something and it, it's really like there's there's every possibility like if you can think of it you can kind of make it happen at some level and just trying to sort through you know like not only you know what's gonna what's what's true to our brand like what's going to communicate that well like what's like financially feasible what what's just like timing wise feasible like that's something i've really learned over time too is like you only have so much time like i feel like in the earlier days it was really easy for me to say yes to like 100 projects and then not really be able to like see any of them to the point where you know they were what i wanted them to be they were like the full realized idea that we had to begin with um so uh, these are all just kind of the lessons i feel like everybody kind of works through running a brand because i mean i never went to school for anything business or branding related so it's been just i don't know kind of like stumbling through all of that and thankfully kind of finding a way to make it work but um you know there's like there's good times and there's definitely like tough times too yeah now i wonder if we're like similar in the way that i i always said from the beginning like when we got into making skateboards let's say i thought like anyone literally anyone could sell a skateboard once but you i wanted to make a good product that people want to like come back for and, and trust us as the place to get said item. So that seems to me it would apply to what you do as well. Cause anyone could make like any popular celebrity could put out a candela that falls apart and doesn't work, sell a bunch, never revisit it but you want people like coming back, telling their friends, right? So like your quality control must be like more precise than mine was. Yeah, I think like, like I was kind of mentioning earlier, quality control like in our industry is kind of just like the eternal struggle that at least like the kind of like highest caliber and most picky players are very picky like they want these things to be perfect right. so like, the beginner doesn't really know one way or another but um the bar has always been set really high and I, I think something that social media really and social media marketing really did was kind of change the game and that like you it's hard to be like just like this faceless kind of brand name and that's that like with social yeah. media people really want to feel like they can relate they want to you know see the human behind what's going on like the they want that kind of genuine interaction um, yeah so uh, i don't know it's, it's 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 really just kind of that balancing act the whole way through which and you you said there's two or three other people at Tara with you? Yeah. Um, uh, like my wife, Kristen, um, she, it's also like her full-time gig is working on the brand. Um, uh, she like 
I said I didn't, but she actually did go to school for some um, related things. Um, like she did a undergrad in like design and photography um, through McEwen and then ACAD in Calgary. Um, and then she actually she did a, a degree in architecture after, which is kind of more unrelated, but um, still a lot of skills kind of transfer. So she does all of our design work, photography, just like a lot of the branding, web work, um, yeah, like a, a big part of what we do. And then, um, one of the guys on our team does kind of some of our social media management for us. Um, he, he's great at it. He has a good voice. He's very interested. He loves it. Um, and that's, that's, that's kind of the, yeah, that's really the meat of it right now. Um, yeah. there's one other guy, Rod, who, uh, over the years, he's like worked for us kind of on and off, um, like also hand turn, like hand making kendamas in our shop. Um, but lately he's been like doing a little bit less. He has another job he's been concentrating on. So um, yeah, really it's two, three people for the most part, which I don't know, it's kind of funny. Like I, I was listening to a few of the episodes you've done over the last few days and um, I can't remember which one, but there was a point where you mentioned like you feel like sometimes people contact you and think you're like a big company or something. And I found yeah. that like so relatable that I've gotten emails that are like, please direct this to like so and so departments in your business or your company. And I'm kind of like, yeah, hi, that's that's all me. Yeah. <laughs> now, so, uh, hopefully, you don't mind me asking how. How long did it take for you to be able to do this full time? And I guess same for Kristen. Like when when were you guys able to quit your other jobs and just do this? Um, I mean, truthfully, like I never really had another job once I finished school. Um, like I, I went to the U of A. Um, and did a degree there. I like studied chemistry, which is entirely unrelated to running a business. Um, and outside of that, like I worked at snow Valley for almost a decade, just as kind of a part-time thing. Um, so kind of started the business, uh, maybe a year and a half, two years before finishing school. Um, and pretty much by the time school wrapped up, my thought was like, Hey, you know, this, this looks like something I could just run with and just, you know, see how it goes. Um, and you know, it kind of worked and kind of kept running with it, kind of grew it a little bit. Um, Kristen was still in school at that time. So it was probably another three years or so until she finished. Um, and same thing at that point, she was already doing a ton of work like on the brand. And so, um, yeah, it made sense for us both just to be on, to be able to concentrate on it, which, um, I don't know, it's been really awesome. Like it's, I always tell people it's like the double-edged sword of running your own business. Like you really have a lot of freedom. You can make your own hours, all this good stuff, but it's, it's like almost always also in the back of your mind that you should be doing some kind of work like you should be yeah. checking your email like the thought of going to work like a nine to five job just seems kind of crazy to me now but 
I think equally like, you know, maybe somebody with a nine to five would look at what I do and see me at like two in the morning writing emails to like our production manager in China, because that's the time of day I'll actually get a reply and can go back and forth. And it's like, you know, maybe that's kind of crazy too, but um, yeah, it's, it's, I guess, so I guess to answer your question, I guess maybe like more directly 2012 or so, 2013 is when I would have kind of turned to doing this full time. Um, and since then it's, it's kind of been, yeah, the full-time gig. There was, uh, there was like a year or two where we ran another business that was kind of adjacent, like running a retail shop. Um, but that only lasted a year or two, um, in the city here. It was a lot of fun, but it was like, yeah, kind of a toll own beast, like running like a actual brick and mortar, like retail store. How many uh, different locations have you had in Vancouver? Uh, three now. And the, the third one, we just moved in a month ago. Um, when I, f- it was kind of funny when I first moved out here, uh, we were just walking around looking for apartments and kind of walked past this workshop building that had a for rent sign in the door. Um, and that was the first time I'd ever rented anything. And it just kind of like blew me away that finding an apartment in Vancouver is like notoriously tough, um, like to this day, but called this number met this guy. And it was like the next day did this little meeting and he was kind of just like, yeah, you want it? Like you're a legit business. Like write me a check for the first month and here's the keys. I was just like thinking like, this is crazy. Like, <laughs> like getting these keys, just be like, Oh man, we're really, you know, before that, it was just kind of like yeah, my parents were nice enough to let me run the workshop out of their garage or whatever. I could go over to their house and like make a few products or whatever. And, and I was like, okay, now I've got to like pay rent and have our own space. Um, so we had that spot for uh, three years or so. And then it's kind of just like the Vancouver story where the guy who owned the building kicked everybody out. He wanted to renovate and move his big business in. Um, we were lucky we moved only a couple blocks away, found another spot that we shared with a screen printing company for about five or six years, I guess. Um, and then same thing, development firm came in, offered the owners a boatload of money, um, gave all the tenants the boot. So um, yeah, we just moved into uh, like an office spot that's um, I don't know, honestly, kind of hilariously, it's again, only like two blocks away from where our other locations are. So we've moved twice a grand total of like, at like 300 yards each time away. It's kind of, every time it's happened, I've been like so stressed out that like rent keeps going up in the city and we're gonna have to move out to the suburbs or something to find a spot. But um, yeah, very thankful that so far the new spots really I don't know, really like fitting the bill and been a good workflow. And then like you do all your, all your online sales and production out of this, the spot. Yeah. So the, the first two spots we had, we did everything. Um, the new spot is an office, so we're not doing our production there. Um, but kind of thankfully, at least in the interim, um, a good buddy of mine here rents a place that 
it's in a really nice part of town and in their backyard they have like this giant workshop like garage um so another friend of his does some woodworking in there right now um and he's let me move my stuff in and um i don't know at least for the next little while i'm gonna do the woodworking out of there though um i guess with like new baby here i'd reasonably probably i'm not going to be in there for at least a couple months so yeah. it's kind of nice to have somewhere i can just kind of shelf it away for like a month or two while still having like a an office spot that we can do all the online sales shipping receiving all the photo work um yeah it's uh, this year i was very stressed we, we found out in january that we were going to have to move um, they kind of gave a year notice on the sale of the building. Um, and this whole year, it's been kind of crazy trying to find a, a new space kind of equivalent to what we have coming out of the pandemic. It seems like, like office space is really easy to come by. Like a lot of businesses, like companies, they went remote work for office stuff. So there's a lot of like empty office buildings in the city there's a lot of big empty production warehouses, but the one thing that's like a really hot commodity is like a thousand square foot kind of like light industrial warehouse space. Yeah. Um, which is pretty much what we'd look for to be able to have a little workshop and do our shipping and receiving. But it seems like COVID kind of brought a lot of people, I guess, just like back home and gave them some time to, maybe focus on some hobbies that they can turn into these little like projects and start these little businesses. And yeah, uh, like looking around, there was like nothing like looked at one or two spots, talked to a couple of realtors and they all just kind of laughed and said like, there's tons of stuff for rent, but like what you want is like what everybody wants. And it just doesn't exist right now. Like, especially in Vancouver, there's just so much development where a lot of these really cool like workshop spots and these older buildings that can support these kind of like, you know, kind of smaller business artisan, small production stuff. Like a lot of those spaces are really just being bought up, torn down and, you know, some big fancy new building goes up that charges four times the rent or whatever it is. Um, so you know, it's kind of the thing, every, it's not like any secret, like it's what everybody's talking about, but it's like very real that you kind of see it happening. So. So hopefully you got a good lease, right? And you want to be there for the foreseeable future. Yes. I mean, that's what I'm hoping. Um, Sign the lease in the new spot. And uh, I mean, so far the landlord seems awesome. We've, really lucked out that the two previous spots also had like a good landlord and or like building manager. Um, I've definitely heard some like real horror stories from other people I know that, you know, run all sorts of different projects and businesses where I don't know, you know, things just go wrong for any number of reasons. Um, so, so far so good, at least fingers crossed that it goes well. Um, I mean, honestly, we actually managed to reduce our rent like a tiny bit each month, which is like a total godsend these days. Yeah, I was going to say that's unheard of. Yeah. I mean, we, we have a little bit smaller like square footage, but even then it's like, I don't know, the, like the price of rent out here, I mean, pretty much everywhere. It's just been kind of skyrocketing. So, um, 
yeah, keeping overhead down is pretty essential when you're running a business with any sort of like longer time frame in mind. Where, uh, like, is Vancouver one of your biggest markets, or are you like shipping stuff to somewhere else with more sales but less kind of in person interaction? Yeah, the majority of our business is not just in Vancouver. Um, like that's for sure. We we do some sales locally, but like being an online business, it's we'll ship globally. Like the biggest market for us is going to be in the U S um, Canada in general is like a good chunk of our sales. And then the rest is like a couple spots in Europe, um, a couple spots in Asia, like Japan and Hong Kong. Um, but it's all, it's kind of spread out. Like it's not one other noticeable market. Yeah. It's fairly spread out. Um there's, there's kind good. of little booms here and there, but right now it's a pretty even spread. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a crazy thing about running a business online and just like an e-commerce thing where you can really reach like a whole world market. Like I think actually probably for the first time since we started running a business just this morning, we got an order from somebody in India, which is like pretty cool. Like that's uh yeah, it's about as close to the other side of the world as it gets. Um, so I don't know. I hope it gets there when I ship this thing. <laughs> we'll see how long it takes to get something all the way over there. But yeah, it's it's funny how like you could be. You know, I'm sure you're like selling many orders every day of the week, but those certain orders to new places always like hit way harder. Yeah, make, yeah, make totally. you feel like all your hard work is like paying off because this like one order and I mean theory in theory they'll they'll tell all their friends and hopefully this is not the last order out there. Yeah, there's like this it's kind of slight bias too. I feel like where when somebody orders something from like a really far off place kind of like load them up a bit too, like any kind of extra stuff we have on hand. It's yeah. Like, you know, give them some extra stickers, like throw an extra bandana or whatever we have on hand in. Um, I, I, I don't know specifically with this India order, but especially sometimes like people pay kind of absurd shipping rates for like one product. Yeah. You're thinking like, dang, this, this person like really wants this thing. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I always did that too try to like reward with the most obscure order always try to throw in whatever we had yeah no it's it's cool though it's rewarding and i mean as much as like the new orders coming in um we kind of touched on it earlier but having the return customers is huge like and that's definitely a good chunk of our business is just you know we have some people who are big supporters and you know we'll buy one of pretty much everything we ever make or something like this. And um, it's, I don't know, it's really like humbling when you kind of like have people supporting you in that way. Yeah. Because I I mean, right there, you can kind of tell. It's like what I was talking about before. It's like anyone can sell one of one thing, but if someone's returning for all, 
everything you guys make that means they like what you make is is resonating with them on on some level so yeah definitely it's yeah it's it's i mean it's rewarding you know it's kind of i think the reason we like started doing this to begin with was just to try and make a good product that people actually like and so when you see that when you see evidence of that you know that's 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 really kind of what it's all about in a way are you worried at all about like growing too big or it seems like you really have a good like good grasp on what's happening yeah i guess i'm not I'm not too worried about getting too big at this point. Like trying to find kind of like I was mentioning, like kind of like smart ways to slowly scale up, um, yeah. especially just in terms of like how much bandwidth we have to actually do a good job on projects and see things through and, you know, trying to find that balance, I think is the important thing. Um, I, I don't think we're quite at the point where we're like, growing too, too fast or something. It's there, there is always kind of this nerve wracking moment where it's like, you know, as you slowly scale up and like, okay, like your production numbers get bigger and you're like sending a bigger and bigger wire transfer. And it's like pulling money out of a line of credit to like cover the cash flow in the meantime. And it's like this kind of like, Oh geez moment where you can kind of see where it's like, if you really scaled up and took like, ton of debt on or something that um you know that can just be a lot of stress like for sure and yeah that, that sort of thing can really take its toll so i think there's like a there's a pretty heavy component of it too that's just you know recognizing your own limits and staying within them um just so that you know you don't go crazy yourself when you're trying to run a brand or a business and you know, I guess, yeah, it's your own time and happiness and health is, you know, worth a lot more. You can't just throw that all away in the, in the name of trying to make a buck. Yeah. No, and it sounds like you're at the ideal size right now too, because I mean, you have help if you need it, like it's not all on just you. But you also don't have to run ideas by like a board of <laughs> 10 people just to like get one thing done. Yeah, definitely. It's, I don't know, it's kind of scary like being the decision maker sometimes, but I think that's something you learn over time too, of just having the confidence to know when something's going to work or when something's not going to work. Um, and we also, I mean, our business, we have a team of just kind of like sponsored players that are reps for us. Yeah. Um, so we work with them as well, just kind of hashing out ideas. And um, it's, it's not quite like a board of directors situation, but it is funny sometimes like, you know, taking some design or some idea or some question to the team and they come back with like 10 different replies that all have you know some maybe good reasons maybe not good reason and then suddenly now you're trying to like mediate between this team that yeah like 
you know, a lot of the time they have really good ideas. A lot of the time they don't see the full picture. So they can't even make the full, like well-informed decision, but it's like, there's still a lot of value in like having these people who can kind of like contribute and just like kind of give you a check, you know, it's especially like, I've never really envied like you running a clothing business because clothing seems so hard to me to figure yeah. out like what people really want. And um, that's always one that stands out to me when we go to our team is a lot of the time, like our team specifically is like, we want more apparel, like make some more t-shirts, make something like here's some crazy design, run it. And it's like, even designs that I think are cool sometimes like nobody else wants and like vice versa. So it's, I don't know. It's been really like, I've always looked at clothing and like brands and just thought like the people who have the eye for it and can do it. Like I got a lot of respect for that because it seems tough. Yeah. It's so fickle. And like, yeah, you couldn't be more red. Like just because you have an idea, you think it's going to work. Doesn't mean everyone you're trying to sell the idea to agrees with you. So you kind of find out like the hard way or I mean some things work and it's it's great and then a lot of things don't and it's stressful yeah and it's, it's uh, tough when you're just staring at like a pile of stock that's not moving and <laughs> I I always ask ask people who I'm talking to who run small businesses which is like pretty much 100% of the people I've had the, the opportunity to talk to, but how are you with like delegation? Do you like you well, trust other people with your ideas or is that hard for you? I think it's gotten easier over time. That's something, I mean, that's a really good question. That's something I always I'm also interested to hear other people talk about because I think it's something like everybody who starts, especially something that kind of comes from a passion project, which again, are like a lot of the people you're interviewing and like talking to, like it's, it's people who are, as far as I can tell so far, like from the episodes I've listened to are like passionate about what they do and that's kind of why they get into it. And so taking hands off, you know, some facet of it can be really scary. Um, but at least personally when I've found like most of the situations where we've kind of gone hands-off and given a project to somebody like on the team or something to work with when it's somebody that you trust to do it it's a lot easier like when you kind of know and respect their opinions and know just just have have that trust that they can pull it off um I think that's kind of what pushes the needle there for me that I don't know. I've, I've never just like hired some random person off the street, you know, like who comes in for yeah. a job interview and I don't really know them otherwise. They don't really know me or the brand or whatever. I think it'd be a lot harder to jump into a situation like that. Um, whereas at least we've been lucky that, you know, having a team of players and people that are motivated and like kind of want to help grow the brand and succeed and push, I guess it's easier to kind of delegate tasks out to them. Um, but I know at the end of the day, there's always going to be some things that I think are really hard to let go of control of. But so, like every time you do it, it gets easier. I think so. And I think that's, 
I think as long as you're having good experiences, it's like you see it working and it just lifts this weight off your shoulders. And like, like I said, with the time management, like it just frees you up to work on stuff that you care about more and that you can now do a better job of. And that's, you're not just kind of half-assing your way through like 20 different things just because, you know, somebody has to get them done. It's like, yeah. now you can really go full bore on it. Yeah. No, no, I, I agree. And uh, earlier on, it was a lot harder for me to, to let that type of stuff go, but I'm kind of learning as I go and as I get older and, and, kind of mature i've i've learned that yeah exactly sometimes it's almost all the time it's better to entrust someone who can do it properly rather than hold on to it and do it like not as properly as as they could so it, it like i used to see it as kind of harmful to the brand but the more I learn, like it actually is almost more harmful not to trust other people with those tasks. Yeah, I think so. And um, I mean, like the, the guy uh, like Max that's running our a lot of our social media right now. I mean, like really, he's like better at it than I probably ever was. You know, not that I think I was not like, like I was bad at it or something, but he i don't know he's a good voice like he's good at kind of getting it out there and um it's still like our situation is like pretty collaborative like we kind of all contribute a little bit to kind of help build the brand in that way but he's kind of the one in the trenches like on instagram like kind of getting through all the daily stuff and it's yeah i think that's a big thing that makes it easier when you kind of give it up and it's like whoa it's actually better than it has ever been like that's that's a big bonus so at least, I don't, I don't know, I can't, I'm trying to think of like if there's been a situation where I've had to kind of delegate something out and have it go really wrong. But I don't know, maybe I guess like, thankfully, I can't really think of anything like really glaring. Right. Yeah, now. no, that's amazing. Because, you know, other people would have a bunch of like, they had to have a ton of stuff go wrong before they got to the point where it worked. For you to have it kind of work from the get-go is, is a much better experience, I would assume. Yeah, I guess, I mean, there's been times where, like, on the production side that some shop messes something up or yeah, kind of delegating work out that way, but that kind of feels more like at an arm's reach where it's, it's not, like, integral to the brand image or something like this yeah no i i know what you mean that that stuff is like you're supposed to delegate that type of stuff and then you know everyone deals with like some push and pull on on that type of stuff but yeah more referencing like someone like a friend or an employee like letting them run with the task because yeah yeah i've had I mean, countless people mess stuff up on the production side, but that that doesn't really get to me at all. I mean, it, it bothers me. It definitely throws a 
like it's added time and added stress to everything but it it wouldn't affect me as much as like a, a friend or an employee like fumbling a task yeah which is kind of funny because it's like on the production side these you know kind of just unavoidable human errors you kind of just expect that yeah. but then when it's like when it's more like close to home and it's like your baby you're like you really want it to be perfect. Like any, any error there just feels so much more damning. Like it's, it's hard to kind of get away from that feeling. And I don't know. There's, it, it, I think it's tough too. Like, I think as, as a, somebody who like runs a brand, it's, you're so stuck in like, like the minutia of all of this that yeah. it feels like every little thing is like make or break, but I think for a lot of like your wider audience, like people out there, like there's kind of like a short attention span. I try to remind myself of this. It's like something can go wrong. And like a few months from now, it probably won't actually matter that much. Like, well, probably even a few like days or a few hours from now, there's so much <laughs> stuff happening in everyone's life. I, I do that too. I like, I care way too much about these tiny isolated instance and when you look at it kind of from a bit of a distance it's like no no one no one probably even knew that that wasn't how you wanted it to be and they're definitely not dwelling on it months later but I I definitely take that stuff a bit too personally yeah I wonder I wonder if that's just like the mark of you know, somebody who's capable of pulling it off that there's probably some like ideal level of like how much you worry about this sort of thing. Well, I like, think if, it's, if you it's just didn't worry too. about your brand at all, like you probably are going to have just like a wreck of a brand by the end of the day. But yeah. if you're so involved in every detail that you drive yourself crazy, like that's not going to be the best outcome either. I always think too, and this is part of why I love uh, just like talking to other people about running their own brands and then kind of like doing a bit of a deeper dive into the inner workings because I think on the outside, like people have no idea, like if a brand owner delegates or if they don't or how many staff there are, you know, exactly what's happening. They just see the finished product. Yeah, I think so. And I I guess like personally, that's kind of been something to learn over time too on the branding front. It kind of goes both ways where it's like you really understand your brand. You really understand the message you're trying to get out and the image you're trying to get out. But then you kind of have to like step away and objectively analyze like whether you're actually pulling that off or not. Yeah. There's been times where like we've made some products that I'm looking at it and thinking, this is awesome. Like I'm super proud of this. Like this, this is really something that's kind of like pushing the envelope here, but we just maybe aren't, like communicating that in just the right way so that then I talk to people like just like you know like Kandama players out in the community or whatever and they have no idea that any of this even exists or what it is or why I think it's special and there's kind of like you really got to have that ability to like step back 
look at the bigger picture, kind of take your own feelings and like experience out of it. And I think that's like, it's kind of like the really tough part a lot of the time, at least for me personally. Yeah, no, no, me, me as well. I agree. It's, it's like, there's, there's like a bit of an ego thing there too, where like, I think you have to believe in yourself and know that you're doing something good. But if you just kind of think that your stuff is the best shit, and expect everybody else to like recognize that it's probably, you know, you're, you're probably gonna have a disconnect there. Yeah, no, I, I was always trying to find a balance between like, you have to go into this stuff, like in a, some, some air of confidence just to kind of make it through your day. And if, if you're not confident in your output, then, you know, you're never going to be, but if you go into it, arrogant like you know that you gotta find the difference between confidence and arrogance yeah and that that was always the tough one for me too i'm personally like not arrogant about any like i i've been blown away since we started until now that anyone cared about anything i did like i'm i'm the least arrogant person about my output but sometimes I kind of feel like you have to like fake that arrogance almost especially in like in the industry I was in because if it's not like quote cool then people aren't gonna treat it as such yeah you know I could I could see that that's like I mean kind of like I said before it's always been like the, the the clothing like in fashion industry always just seems really scary because like all the things I was just talking about, just, it seems like amplified there. Like, just like you're saying where it's like this high level of confidence, but still like some humility in what you're doing. Just. It's like, I, I, I felt like I was leading a double life at the time because you got to present <laughs> it, kind of <laughs> present it as like I was saying as a bit of arrogance, but then like really I'm like, the most insecure like you know i'm like second guessing every move i make but i can never let anyone know that or else they're not gonna perceive it as cool like if if the person making it doesn't think it's cool why should anyone else but that that's just me you know or or my industry Uh, i mean i think that rings pretty true though and like i mean i you know, at least from the outside, like, I, I, to me, I'd say you've done a pretty, like, stand-up job of that. And um, just, like, having a brand that's, like, like something, like, you know, that's represented, like, Edmonton and been proud to because, like, I've heard talk about it in other shows where it's, like, uh, like, from Canada, it's, like, oh, you know, you kind of, you see people rep, like, toronto or montreal or vancouver and yeah you've even seen like people from edmonton who gain success and then don't really like yeah represent that they're even from edmonton and i've always thought that's like really kind of weird and sad and like it, it's it, i like kind of going back to that like honest thing like just like staying honest to your brand and like where you come from and i think that's important it's I don't know, you know, maybe that's just like bad branding, but I think it's kind of 
bullshit to like look at it that way. Yeah, I I don't know. Maybe like once once you see a certain level of success, like you mentioning Edmonton actually hinders that. So I I'm not as big as as any of the people that I'm kind of critiquing for not mentioning us once they blow up. But I don't know for now. I I just feel like you should always kind of reference where you're from and. I feel it's so much harder to come from here and excel at, at anything, really. So, again, like, I don't know what it's like to really blow up from here because I'm from here, but I haven't fully blown up yet. But until then, I'm, I'm still going to kind of critique, like, people I've seen go on, get big, and then never mention it again. Yeah, yeah, I can... I think I'd agree with that. You know, maybe kind of hard to really be in their shoes, but you kind of hope that, I don't know, you know, like I've lived in Vancouver for a while now, but I still have a lot of like love for Edmonton, like where I came from and the people there. And um, I don't know, you know, like I'm not as big as some of these people are brand by a long shot either, but you kind of hope that, you know, as you grow, you kind of keep that humility yeah, but see, I would I would also like give you a, a complete pass on it anyway, because even like you were just describing, you at least your first store or shop was in Vancouver. So even though like you're from here, it's not like you know, you like were here for the first five years of it until you gained momentum and then you moved away and never talked about yeah. being from here different yeah i suppose that's like kind of true i guess i mean the first place we really made anything out of was like i mentioned just my parents garage in edmonton for the first couple years um but the first space we like fully rented was in vancouver um but what do your parents think about all this like they understand (laughs) what it is yeah, no, I mean, they've, they've honestly always been really supportive. Um, I, I always remember, it's kind of funny, like, uh, the, when we first wanted to buy this wood lathe and I came in and, uh, I don't know, we were like maybe 20 years old or so. And I came inside and my dad was there and I was like, Hey, we're going to, we're going to try and make a kendama. Like we're going to buy a wood lathe. And he just like laughed at me, like not in like an unsupportive way, but just in like a, like, what are you, like, you've never done anything like that. Like, yeah, good luck, kid. Like, sure you are. And I remember like the next morning he came downstairs in the morning and I had this wood lathe like pulled out that we were trying to figure out just like, you know, how to assemble a couple parts and pieces and seeing him kind of be like, oh, okay. Like now you have a wood lathe, like you're actually going to do this. Um, and I think at every step of the way, like at first they didn't really, I guess like not, not that at that point in time, like Kendama was even like a big market with like a lot of potential to grow a brand, but I think they definitely like just didn't really see that it could be a business. And as we started to do it and like actually make enough money to support myself, it was just, I don't know, kind of this journey where I think they kind of slowly clued in and, um, 
I guess when I was, when I was younger, like my mom was a school teacher, but um, when she took time off work, like having kids, like she ran her own little business doing kids clothing for a few years. Um, so at least in that respect, like she had experience like running a small brand and kind of knowing, you know, like what it's like and what it takes. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, like she was always kind of impressed and on board. Um, but um, yeah, I don't know. I guess like in general, I'd say they're pretty supportive, but just kind of bewildered through a lot of it, which I think is like totally fair. And like I mentioned, like we didn't, we didn't really start the brand or the business trying to grow it in some big thing. It just kind of like very organically like snowballed into something bigger and bigger. So there was never really like one moment where it was like, we're really going to commit and go for it. But like all these incremental steps of getting there and um, yeah, I don't know. I I imagine like, it's probably like, I, I think like a lot of people or more people do stuff like this these days, but it's still kind of funny. Like, you know, maybe they have conversations where it's like, what does your son do? And they're like, Oh, he runs his own business doing this Kendama thing. And I don't know. I think that's probably just like, especially for some older generation, like that probably just does not make any sense. Like, yeah. I've had a couple like friends, parents just kind of be like, what are you doing? Like, that's not a real job. Yeah. You know, when are you going to go find like a real job? (laughs) Yeah, no, I know. Like meeting, I mean, I guess the same, like, sort of friends, friends of my parents or friends of Sarah's parents explaining, like, oh, I, I make hats. You could tell they were, like, they didn't, you know, maybe, like, thought it worked a bit, but they were probably, like, what, how is that a real, a real thing? Like, how are you in any way supporting yourself while doing this, but. I mean, it's always nice too to to know that you're kind of excelling, or at least like living your like dream. I guess not not to be super corny, but almost like proving them wrong in a way. Not that like that isn't what you set out to do, but just knowing that they might kind of like not take it that seriously, but you know it it's a real enough thing that you know like yeah I think I've always kind of generally been someone to try to who who tries to I I don't know like just approach things in a very like DIY like sovereign kind of way like I like to be in charge of what I'm doing right um and kind of like self-defined like it's so it's at least for me, like very true to that, like, you know, the, the thought of going to work for somebody else now, like I said, kind of seems crazy in a way, yeah. um, which isn't to say like, that'll never happen. Like, who knows, you know, maybe it gets to that point where I need just, I don't know, more stability or something and want to just lessen the load. But um I don't know, at least for now, that seems, seems undesirable, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, uh, I felt the same way. It was like, I, it wasn't that I was lacking work ethic, 
just I couldn't see myself like putting in the effort that I put into doing nowhere fast. I couldn't ever do that for someone else. But when it's for me, I'm fine. Like I work 24 hours a day if it was on what I wanted to do. But as soon as it's like one thing for for someone else, then uh, not not the same like laser focus. But I'm I'm trying to get better at that as well. Yeah, and I think I don't know. I mean, I count myself lucky that like I have a job that I enjoy and that is interesting, and you know, I can kind of self define. Um, because when I was younger, I had some pretty crappy jobs too. Like the the summer that we bought a wood lathe, like. I had like the summer job working at the Sobeys warehouse, like driving a pallet jack around, like loading grocery orders. And it was just the most soulless place. Like it was, yeah. it was bad. Like it was, I, I don't know. It was, it was, it was really crazy to me. Like they had a really high employee turnover for sure. But there was like the handful of guys that had worked there for like 30 years or something. Yeah. And it just like kind of blew my mind that anyone could possibly do that <laughs> for that long at least you can look back on it kind of as like a stepping stone to get you to hear like a catalyst for you to buy the equipment you need to, to start out on your own yeah no definitely i mean it's it, it was motivation one way or another you know there's always like life has its ups and downs and not to be like kind of like corny cliche but you know you kind of it's never going to be just all good stuff so yeah finding like ways to kind of use the bad stuff to like further yourself is um i mean i think that should be the goal it's probably not always going to work some stuff just flat out sucks but yeah no no i i agree with that for sure it's a good sentiment yeah no definitely it's it's not always easy to stick to in the moment but i don't know hindsight's 2020 and all that yeah yeah of course um you know what uh we're uh we're at at our allotted time i uh i think unless you have anything else you want to talk about i i've learned a lot i i i only knew a, a tiny bit about gendamas i i did bare bare minimum research just uh, like not look like a total novice while trying to like hold a conversation but i know you have a child to get to so i should let you get on yeah. with your evening no i appreciate that and yeah, this, is, this has been, I don't know, it's just, you know, great to see you again. It's been uh, been a while since we, like, really caught up. Hopefully, you can do it face-to-face, like, in person someday soon. But Yeah. You know, just before I let you go, I'll explain. It's funny. Uh, Sarah gives me almost all of my good ideas in, in every aspect of life. And she brought up the other day that you'd be a good good guest and have a unique story so that was in my head and then we went to the bar uh which 
we never do really, but we ran into uh, that friend of your sister's who the, the first thing he said was like, I think you know uh, Alex Smith. And then I was like, oh yeah, like Sarah brought this up and now like these are two mentions within like an hour. I have to ask him. And then when you uh, responded to my story or whatever, I thought, okay, I'll ask him. But then you said you had just had a kid. So I thought, well, this is never going to happen. And uh, I'm actually quite impressed at how quick you made it happen with all the other stuff that you must be dealing with right now. That, you know, it's kind of funny, like, like approaching the end of like Kristen's pregnancy and talking to people, like so many people told me like, you know, get ready. Like when the baby comes, you're going to be so busy. Like your life's going to be crazy. But the lead up to the birth was so crazy because we like moved our whole business out of this workshop that we'd been in for five or six years on top of all the usual business we're trying to do just in my mind it was like once the baby comes it's actually going to be like easier like I don't I don't know if it actually gonna is is, or if it's actually gonna play out that way but at least in my head I was thinking like there's no way it can be crazier than what life is like right now yeah and I mean right like taking care of the baby has been like a tremendous amount of work, but it's like really awesome work. Like it's, it's really cool and rewarding. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of this nice balance right now, at least. And thankfully he's like a really good chill little baby. Like he, yeah, really, maybe, like, maybe you're just getting like the first button. couple of weeks easy. So I'm glad I caught you now. Maybe yeah, in a month he'll, he'll just be, too swamped yeah well we'll see how it goes i'm i'm hoping he remains pretty chill as a baby but everyone says that you know it's just constantly changing they're just constantly growing and progressing and yeah it's gonna be awesome to watch one way or another but yeah again awesome awesome to chat man i'm really glad we could take the time to do this yeah thank you so much for uh making time to to share some of this with me congrats on the baby and i say hi to kristen yeah will do likewise uh say hi to sarah i haven't seen her in a long time either and yeah hopefully catch you sometime soon cool thank you i'll uh, i'll talk to you soon yeah sounds good have a good night Wes.